0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Everybody okay? Yeah, doing well. Uh, Matt, are you reading bear stuff as we go through this?
2: Yeah, I think... Uh, the way in which he thinks things through is really interesting. He he's, he's actually seems a little postmodern to me. What do you think? What do you mean by postmodern? Uh, you know, I come from a Methodist evangelical background, and so he's not necessarily looking for universals uh, and foundations on which uh, uh, universal foundations on which to stand, but is looking within the tradition itself and standing on tradition. And maybe it's because he's orthodox, but he, you know, his writings are very different than the theology I'm used to in the Methodist Church, which tends to be more evangelical and tends to look for universal foundations on which to stand. Can we trust the scripture? Is this authoritative? Whereas he simply, you know, takes the writings and explores them.
1: That is the turning to returning to a pre-modern. Yeah. Is sort of postmodern. In other words, I think what has happened in the modern that we've caught, gotten caught up in a foundationalism. And that's not what he's doing. That there is something he's working with a broader understanding.
2: Yeah. So Howard Wass has a little book on reading scripture. And so he John Barrett reminds me very much of that. You see some alignment in them. Howard Wass wants to you know, throw out any notion of uh, inerrancy or sola scriptura.
1: Uh, That was certainly where I was weaned. Probably people of my generation, I'm a little too old to have made the shift that I made. I don't think that most of my contemporaries were able to make that shift. You know, we were just so thoroughly saturated and trained in a kind of modern foundationalism. The idea of of a rationalistic approach that takes into account both liberalism and a a notion of biblical inerrancy. You know, that it's almost like you're put between a rock and a hard place. Well, you got to choose one of those. And so, somebody like Bear, or somebody who is jumping back to the pre modern, and I think that's what we all have to do. We just have to say, oh, that's the wrong conversation to have for, for so, some people. You know, this is Thomas Kuhn's point. Some people will never make the shift. You just can't. Once you're trained in seeing things a particular in a particular fashion, you can't undo it. And I, I think that's true of, cert, probably true of my generation, certainly true of the generation. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, Dave. That's right. You, you, I had the same professor you had. I entered school at a time when the whole controversy was, you know, the battle for the Bible in the words of Harold Linzell. Okay, how do you do battle? Well, you got to prove them liberals wrong. And the way you do that is their attacks on scripture, then you have to show they're unsubstantiated. And so that's why, you know, like with a class on the gospels, the whole class may be devoted, and this was true of my both my undergraduate and graduate education. The whole class was devoted to harmonizing because one of the primary attacks on the Gospels was, oh, well, they can't be harmonized, and therefore they're not true.
3: Help me out if you can, Paul. Uh, you said you were able to make the shift, but some folks in – I'll say our generation weren't able to help me uh, outline
1: what that shift is about. If you would uh, characterize what biblical theology looked like for the past generation, uh, if you went to a conservative school, uh, doesn't even have to be fundamentalist, but just conservative, then what became known as fundamentals or the fundamentals of the faith, you know, actually fundamentalism had a very particular meaning, uh, you know, that they came up, I can't remember, was it five fundamentals of the faith, but one of the key ones was biblical inerrancy. In words, where, where does the authority lie? In one instance, you know, people are saying they would say, well, those liberals are saying the authority lies in human reason or rationality. And we conservatives, we trust in the words of the Bible. But actually, they're all doing the same game, doing what I think Paul talks about. And that is that attaching authority to the letter of the law, attaching authority, you know, the, oh, it's scientifically true, it's historically true. And we got to prove all that. So a lot of our effort is in proving. You know that those all of the stories are true you know if if we should lose the argument at any point the danger is you're going to take out one brick and the whole wall will will fall apart a cool quote that i was just reading that fits in
4: uh, to this perfectly what what you're talking about i've been reading origins commentary on the gospel of john but i do not condemn the fact that the gospel writers have also made some minor changes to what happened, so far as history is concerned, with a view to the usefulness of the mystical object of those matters. Consequently, they have related what happened in this place as though it happened in another, or what happened at this time as though at another time, and that they have composed what is reported in this manner with a certain degree of distortion. So, and before this, he had been going through and sort of showing all the different discrepancies about, oh, you know, G- Matthew says Jesus went to Capernaum, but Mark says he goes to here. And, you know, so he goes through and he says that he actually says before this, he says, if someone should examine the Gospels carefully to check the disagreement, so far as the historical sense is concerned, we shall attempt to show that this disagreement in individual cases, insofar as we are able, he would grow dizzy. <laughs> And so he goes to complete that last quote that I was saying. He says, for the gospel writer's intention was to speak the truth spiritually and materially at the same time where that was possible, but where it was not possible in both ways to prefer the spiritual to the material. The spiritual truth is often preserved in the material falsehood, so to speak. Uh, you know, and so he goes through and he shows like a couple of different examples of how, how that is true. And it's just such a different way, right, of reading than how, kind of like you were saying, the modern rationalistic interpretation, you know, the methods of interpretation in these last couple hundred years or so, how we do things. So I just thought it was kind of a yeah, yeah. neat thing that I just, just ended up reading that. kind of weird. And
1: or- Origen also says the, the opposite. He says, you know, you can read it and conclude that it's historically true but you're still may be treating it as a myth if you don't understand that the authority resides in Christ. It's not like he's denying or affirming historicity. I assume that a lot of that for most of it he affirms it. But his point yeah. is that the historicity yeah. of it is not the point. Whereas in the fundamentalist liberal controversy, the whole argument was, oh did this really happen or didn't it happen? And I think in the early church that that wasn't a, a concern. The point was that the authority ri- resides in God. The authority resides in Christ. And in Bear's picture, then, and I think Bear is as a trained as an Eastern theologian. So the, the way we got started here, Matt said that Origin seemed postmodern. There is a sense that we just step out of the whole modernist controversy by going back to an early church understanding. We just don't have to play that game that, right. that has absorbed you know, most of us. Let me say a few things on this as a kind of introduction to our class, and that is to, to get at what I think the whole point of Bible reading is. Paul, you know, in Corinthians says that the the word of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews seek a sign, the Greeks are seeking wisdom. We almost need to appreciate the implausible nature of the gospel to Jew and Greek. And Jew and Greek just means everybody at that point. That is I think that we if we miss the kind of implausible nature of it that where the danger is we're going to fail to see what's actually happening in the gospel and i think particularly the gospel of john that is if you had to say what neither jews nor greeks could possibly believe it would be to say that heaven and earth are connected now they they're coming at that from different perspectives uh for a jew You know, as Paul is describing, it's all all about signs. And what I'm taking him to be saying there is what the writer of Hebrews says, but actually what Jews believe. Uh, What was it that Moses saw? This is a big discussion among Jewish rabbis. And they they obviously, they conclude, well, he can't have possibly have seen God. You know, he may have seen the trailings of God. And so for a, a Jew... The notion that you could see God or encounter God on earth, that that is over and against the whole system. What we're seeing in John, the bridging of or, or bringing together of heaven and earth. Jim, I noticed you mentioned this, you know, what is it that's a stumbling block or what is it that's repulsive to the gospel for the Jews? I think it's this point. In other words, when we talk about the Logos as the Tetragrammaton, in the targums they never thought of that logos becoming in for them it was you know always a complete transcendence and then you add on to that the notion of a crucified messiah you know first of all just to imagine an in messiah was a problem but then to um, imagine a crucified messiah is a double problem a kind of double impossibility And part of this, you know, uh, is because of what crucifixion is, but the other part is just because of what death is for a Jew. Their notion about Sheol or Hades and what that represents, that's outside Yahweh's rule for most of the Old Testament. Now, I know that in the latter part, uh, you know, when we approach the latter part of the Old Testament in time, that they're going to begin to, to think differently about death. But for most all of the Old Testament, the God of Israel is completely removed from death. I think this is an aspect of the temple that we miss out on, that has been misinterpreted. The whole point of the sacrifices and misunderstanding was to cleanse the temple of death, because Yahweh can't have anything to do with death in the sacrifices. There is a cleansing, and then there is a dedication of life. And the same thing with uh, funeral rites, you know, you never want to touch a dead body. You know, there's all kinds of elaborate rituals surrounding death. I don't think we have that sensibility in this culture, but in Japan, this is still true. You know, a funeral director or somebody who prepares the body of the dead. There's a wonderful movie, by the way, about this, that if you get the chance to see it, it's about a Japanese funeral director. And then the guy is actually a cello player, but he can't make a living. He secretly gets a job at the funeral director and his wife doesn't know about it. And, of course, it's such a shameful thing that he's handling the dead and all this. I think in traditional societies, this is, is very much the case. But let me read a, a couple of scriptures. The The idea of Sheol or death being, a, that's where God's not. In Psalm 6, 5, there, there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? Psalms chapter 30, verse 9 What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? The idea is, well, once you go to the pit, once your soul is abandoned to Sheol, and if you go to Sheol, it is being abandoned, there is not a possibility of of reaching God. Psalm 88, 10 to 11 Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Will your faithfulness abide in the place of destruction? And the implied answer in this instance is no, it won't. As Psalm 115 says, the dead do not praise the Lord nor do any who go into silence. Uh, Isaiah says, for Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. And Matt, as I'm saying all this, when you actually mentioned this, the idea of Christ being in Sheol, this is just absurd for a Jew to talk this way. the, The harrowing of hell. So there's this unbridgeable gap between heaven and earth and Sheol I think is the point of separation. And I think it's important to get this in order to get what's happening on the cross, that the condition of death, which is connected with the flesh, it poses an impossibility for God even, and to be truly incarnate. You know, what does it mean to be human? Uh, It's going to not simply be inhabiting a body, but it's going to go the way of the flesh. It's, you know, this is what happens on the cross. The cross then is connected to glory. You know, if you had to define glory, I think that a key aspect of what glory is, is incorruption in the face of corruption. That is that what is most corruptible, what is most contemptible, that's the place where God's incorruption shines forth. The cross. I think this is why the hour of glory, you know, this is this week we talked about the the countdown to the hour of glory, because that's the hour of what? Full revelation. That's the hour when we know who Christ is. You know, why the cross? Uh, Not to exclude the, the resurrection, but I think it's from the cross that incarnation is complete. And this is actually, you know, in John, Jesus is talking about this, at least alludes to this, that the the labor is finished at the cross in John 16, 20. You've probably heard this quote from Hippolytus. He says, the word of God being fleshless, put on the holy flesh from the holy virgin as a bridegroom, a garment, having woven woven it for himself, in the sufferings of the cross, so that having mixed our mortal body with his own power, and having mingled the corruptible into the incorruptible, and the weak with the strong, he might save the perishing human being. The web beam, therefore, is the passion of the Lord. Upon the cross and the warp of it on it is the power of the Holy Spirit, and the woof is the holy flesh. That is, there's this weaving that's taking place backward that what hippolytus is describing is that incarnation is completed at the cross and is woven backward to the womb of the virgin here's the point at which the fullness of the gospel the glory of god that you know in hippolytus's point the the wo- the, the weaving is complete i can't remember who said this last week you know that in John there is no transfiguration but of course the whole book is transfiguration that every page you know from the one from above we know who this is the one who is not put to death but rather lays down his life of his own accord the one who does not pray you know all the other gospels the the prayer is that this cup should pass from me but instead he asserts what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. In the other gospels, we hear, you know, the temple, the curtain is rent, and the temple not mentioned in, in John, but we hear the crucifix crying out, not why have you forsaken me, but rather it is finished. The It is complete. And then this idea of the handing over of the Spirit, I think we've misunderstood that. Uh, What does it mean that he handed over the spirit?
2: John's Pentecost?
1: Yeah. Handed it over to us. Not that he
2: handed it up to the Father or died, or yeah.
1: I think that's it. Here is the giving of the spirit. It is finished. That well, we now have this new profound coherence. Everything holds together. And of course, this new way of reading, this is Richard Hayes, that there's a profound new symbolic coherence as provided by the uh, apocalypsis of the cross. Think again, you know, of the flesh and death and the particular sort of spiritual weaving being accomplished at the cross. Now the spirit is interwoven with the flesh. You know, this is John Bear running down Origin. We often talk about origin spiritual reading, but I think we may miss what he means by a spiritual reading. The letter, the flesh, the embodied takes on the spirit. And the spirit, the gospel is brought alive in the heart and the soul of man. So by spiritual reading, you know, this is our discussion. Why are we reading the Bible? What are we doing? Well, the in the, the, the first century, the, the apostles' origin – Well, they're reading the Bible because it's in and through the gospel that Christ is brought alive in the life of a person. In other words, we encounter Christ in the same way that we see John encountering Christ. So the garments, I'm quoting uh, Origen, the garments of the word are the phrases of scripture, are the divine thoughts, are clothed in these expressions, these garments can also be considered as the flesh of the word. For always in the scriptures, the word became flesh that he might tabernacle among us. When does the gospel become the gospel? When does the word, when does scripture become scripture? When is it constituted? I think it's at the point of the cross, you know, that this becomes the interpretive key for everything that with the gift of the spirit, the giving of the spirit, which in John is simultaneous with the cross, that is the point that scripture is constituted for us, or that the gospel is constituted for us. You know, when Origen talks about the literal sense, Bear goes to some lengths to say, he's not talking about, you know, between spiritual and literal. He's not talking about some kind of anti-incarnational tendency or, some, you know, docetism or esoteric elitism, but the, the move that is made in reading the Bible, why we read the Bible, uh, they have to be read as uh, not only stories or narratives. In other words, if you just read it as a narrative, uh, then the gospel's not proclaimed. They have to be proclaimed, translated, made a proclamation quote, that affects the sojourn and produces the coming, the perusia of the word in the present. The word is brought alive in us. And it's not simply that the gospels are a combination of both narrative and proclamatory passages. Do you all know who uh, Martin Hingle is? Hingle has done a, a wonderful picture of the role of crucifixion and just the abhorrence of it. Actually, it's available online if you want to look at it, but Hengel describes it as a kerygmatic biography, that kerygma, the word, the gospel, is woven into the narratives uh, needing to be unveiled to become gospel. So this unveiling that is taking place, it's there is a sense that the substance of the veil seems to be the same as the substance of the pit of Sheol flesh and death speak of distance and a kind of impossibility for God, and Christ then closes that gap. There is a harrowing of hell. We find the crucified God, so that Sheol, Hades, the realm of the dead, which in a way, I I hope I'm not overstating that, but there is the sense that that's what constitutes the substance of the gap for the Jews. You know, think of David. You remember when he has the child uh, with Bathsheba, and he's mourning and he's fasting because the child hasn't died yet. And then they come in and say, well, the child died. And he gets up, washes his face, and he stops fasting. He does it just the opposite. You know, people say, well, David, you've got this backward. Now you should be mourning. And David says, but why should I fast? The child has died. Can I bring him back again? And uh, Job says when a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. A man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. Which maybe there's in Job actually there's a couple of passages that you it raises raises the question. It's not that there is a singular voice in the Old Testament. You know, there are places where God uh, defeats death and overcomes it. And so my point is that Christ bringing heaven and earth together must involve this (coughs) dealing with Sheol, with death, not to render it an empty place. I think it's already an empty place. In a sense, then, when, you know, in John, it says that he's pitched his tent, he's made his presence known. In a place that that's an impossibility, and where is it more impossible than on the cross? In this empty, you know, emptying out of the category of hell or Hades or Sheol. Everybody understands hell is uh, not in the modern parlance, not not uh, the eternal torturous existence, but in, in an old English sense. And so it's in preaching the crucified Lord. This is bare that the matrix of scripture, that the word receives flesh. It's, you know, it's there in the patriarchs. It's there in the prophets. It's like the virgin in, in, in the, the, as Hippolytus describes it, uh, and later on affirms. It's the, also the, the sense of what the church is about, that the church is one who continually bears Christ, as she teaches all the nations. You know, why do we read scripture? Well, the same reason, in a sense, that the church is on the order of Mary bringing Christ into the world.
5: I remember, uh, and it's it's taken me, it's taken a lot of time to kind of cleanse, detox this. I remember in my undergrad, and we were using Cottrell stuff uh, before I took Cottrell in my graduate work. He fought against all this. If you Google Christological Fallacy, his work comes up. Right. And um, throw that off to the side just because I have to continue to detox myself from that. But the uh, going back to King David, I think this is how wrongly I, I looked at scripture for a long time is uh, because I remember, I think years ago, preaching a sermon that uh, David was like, okay, hey, listen, the child's dead, I'm going to heaven and I'll meet the child in heaven. <laughs> and I mean, I remember preaching that. And uh, I did a, a study not too long ago with our church on hell and shale and all that. And when you go through the Old Testament, nobody believes anything but death. You know, you really don't even get into any future hope until maybe, you know, the Maccabean period or something like that. I guess, and what I heard heard you saying, and and hopefully I understood this right, is is David wasn't saying, hey, I'm going to be with you in the afterlife. David was saying, no, I'm going to the grave too.
1: I think that's it. And I think we have to say this in a in a fairly hard way in order to have an appreciation for resurrection. In other mm-hmm. words, for most people, for Greeks, resurrection is not good news. Resurrection would be bad news because it's continued embodiment. So what I'm describing uh, as a Jewish sensibility uh, is there's, you know, this attachment to signs is an attachment to the flesh is an attachment to the earth, not because they recognize that God is there, but because that's as good as it gets. That's my reading of what it means. You know, this is the, even the Theophanies, A good Jew never imagined that that was God per se. It's like the writer of Hebrews says, that this law, this old system, was mediated by angels, not God. But now we have the the one who is the very icon of God. You have to describe the impossibility of the situation and of the reality of death to have a full appreciation for what resurrection means. So I think you have to have the Jewish sensibility. Oh, well, the earth is good that, you know, we have God, uh, you know, we have the sign. Paul is is doing what the writer of Hebrews is doing, what the writer of John is doing. Oh, now the reality, now heaven has come to earth. Now here's, you know, Jacob's ladder. Here's the angels ascending and descending on the son of man. So with Jesus, it, it's no longer, the, the gap is closed, uh, that here is heaven come to earth. God has come to his temple. The symbolism is, I think, all that the Jews thought they had. That's why they're a people of the book. And I think that's why it's a grand tragedy when Christians imagine that they too are a people of the book. We're not a people of the book, we're a people of the Lord. We're a people of of Jesus Christ. And that's the difference between Christianity and Judaism, but it's also the difference between Christianity and Islam. You know, Muslims would be a people of the book too. I think just like a lot of fundamentalist Christians, that the book almost serves in place of God. For a Jew, that didn't bother them because that was, yeah, that's what we got. And so they were willing to, you know, I think that's what Paul means. That's not over and against. That's not a uh, something that a Jew would disagree with. That's just the way they understood it. You're
3: saying that if we're able to put resurrection in context, it
1: amplifies its meaning. Yes. So I think we, we have to get the Jewish sensibility, which is just the impossibility of encountering God on First of all, in the flesh, on the earth, and certainly in Sheol, in the place of the dead. That is just over and against. That, that undoes a Jewish worldview. But you understand the same thing is true of Greek wisdom. Because Greek wisdom requires, you know, this is Plato's, the body is the prison house of the soul. The forms are in, uh, they're an abstraction. There's nothing personal about the forms. And so wisdom would also then create a gap. That is a religious philosophical gap, but I think that religious philosophical gap Kind of describes the reality that we're all stuck in, a kind of unreality.
3: If if you can imagine the typical evangelical, they're standing outside the grip of this meaning of crucifixion.
1: In a sense, you know, this is the Mel Gibson thing. We get the horror in that sense. But I I think that that even there, we're still missing the shame that a Roman in uh, Giorgio Agamben's picture, that one, who is put on a cross is homo sacer, bare life. That is, it's not even human life. It's just bare life. It's biological life. In Aristotle and Plato and in a Roman sensibility, the way that one becomes human is in in and through the city of man. You know, this is why Socrates, in a sense, you know, Socrates, I guess he could have been banned from the city, taken his punishment and left town. But of course, he chose to drink the hemlock because it, it is a, an accursed situation worse than death to be cast out of the city. And, of course, that's what we're describing with Christ, that Christ dies outside of the city literally, but also metaphorically. He dies outside of Jewish law. He dies outside of Roman law. He is the equivalent of homo sacred. So I think we have to get the horror yeah, it's a system of torture and all that. All that's, you know, that's there. But I think also what we have to recognize it's a means of total humiliation. That is the one who dies on a cross. You know, it's a slave. This is Hingle's book. It's not simply that non-citizens, they did occasionally crucify insurrectionists. But the idea is, oh, if you do something that bad, you're you're cast out of the the shame of it is also a huge part of what's happening. And so So, I think we've got to get that.
3: So if if you're trying to find meaning in the crucifixion, before the crucifixion, it's a total vacuum. There is no meaning.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's it.
3: Why? What's the point? But I need to jump over that gap. There's absolutely, you can't imagine any meaning in taking it on, but then afterwards, there is
1: a meaning. Outside of this context that I've just described, the right. jewish context the roman context right. i don't think crucifixion makes a lot of sense and i think that's why we got somebody like i think that's why we get penal substitution that's why we get Anselm of Canterbury because yeah. they're they're going to put it in a different context they're going to and not
4: just it. not just crucifixion but death doesn't make sense right like there's no
3: there's no intelligibility at all to not only crucifixion but just death itself
1: yeah the the
3: bar, the bar from our last class first thing that comes to mind is expose the lie that death is absolute.
1: Yeah, that it's always an orientation to death that is being dealt with here. It can be an explicit absolute, that in some way you manipulate it, or it can be an implicit absolute. But I, always there's this negotiation with this realm, and, and of course there is always a deception regarding it. The deception I, I you know you can use the term death denial but that uh, w- which kind of gets at it but the idea is the fear the fleeing the the refusal that you know that's what we would normally react to a cross and cross bearing but then also all that the cross represented in that it is a judgment on the city of man i think that gets the breaking in aspect you know this is the the apocalyptic sense of it that this is a different world order because the way that Greeks and Jews order their world is around the absolute of death. And so if the gospel invades Sheol, I mean, the significance of that, it invades everything. This is the way that Origen says, everything is made into the gospel. The spirit or the spiritual vivifies the flesh and makes the dead letter live. And what had previously not been the gospel, the prophets, the you know, the law becomes the gospel. This is origin, he says, but since the savior has come and has caused the gospel to be embodied in the gospel, he has made all things gospel, as it were. You know, the picture, obviously, the Spirit is bestowed, picture in John fourteen twenty six to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is all going to become gospel in the way that John records it for us. We have the end in the beginning, and I think that's why John is such a different gospel than the synoptics. The disciples, you know, we're kind of in the place of the disciples who did not understand Jesus' action and John does both things. You know, you have Jesus writing in Jerusalem on an ass and they didn't understand it. John says, but then John explains it when Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered that this had been written about him and done to him and citing Zechariah. In other words, suddenly the old Testament or what we call, you know, the old Testament is coming alive through the life of Christ. And so the gospel Becomes gospel by recalling events which take on perspective when seen from this kind of anterior. I've I've re- described it as a future anterior perspective. Those of you who have done anything with Lewis Martin, you know this is the way he's describing apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. We have heaven and we have earth, and they're kind of you know that we there's a kind of double-barreled view that the events on the heavenly stage correspond to events on the earthly stage, and they kind of precede them. And events on the earthly stage are seen, you know, as enigmatic apart from this, you know, heavenly vision. And so he's saying that stereoptic vision is necessary and it's what is apocalypse. But then he goes on to say that in the gospel, Heaven has come to earth in Jesus, and so that's the new time. That's the hour. Heavenly hour, heavenly time, uh, this way of eternity invading time. Time contains the future. Heaven time contains the future of earth time. Thus the reference to heaven, that order of time now orders the time that we encounter in John. And so in Martin points you know to both levels, heaven and Earth, in John, are enacted in the life of Christ. You know, the, the heavenly is enacted on in the earth. Uh, the temporal does not parallel the, well, the heavenly with the earthly, but the two stages are the times of Christ's own life and that of his body, the community. We're going to interpret everything in and through the life of Christ. And John does not in, in indicate a distinction then. Everything is kind of run together here. This is Richard Bachman says, the memories of the passion and death of Jesus must have been the most obstinately meaningless and at the same time unforgettable of the traditions. They don't know what's happening. What in the world's going on? And even in the light of the resurrection, and it took scriptural interpretation, which is now woven in with the passion narratives to make sense of the memories, to make them even tolerable, but then we have this inexhaustible meaning. You could almost say this about anything. Things don't make sense, you know, apart from some sort of interpretive frame that is brought after the fact. You know, this is Kierkegaard. We live, live life forward, but we understand it backward. And so in the Greek and Jewish conception, heaven and earth must remain separate. Because with the Jew, they're thoroughly earthbound and it's blocked off from the reality of God, that that we can have signs of God, we can have theophanies, we have the law, and with the Greek, it's blocked off from earthly reality. And this is, you know, I I think that's what Gnosticism is. It's a a fusion of a Jewish and a Greek sensibility. This is why we're going to get a a docetism or a denial of the embodiment of Christ. I think we, we have to go and recognize how unbelievable that was, how, in a sense, how despicable it was, as Paul says, a scandal. And Paul emphasized the scandal. In other words, I think that's part of his preaching, that that until you understand the scandal, you haven't understood what's happening in the cross. You know, this is Bachman's point, that scholars have supposed that the gospel of John could not have been written by an eyewitness because it's so highly theological, it's interpreted. But his point is the high degree of interpretation is appropriately, precisely to one who is an eyewitness. In other words, here is somebody who is an eyewitness and has now made sense of it through the passion. Now he understands what what this was about. So to see events without understanding them is pure chaos, and I think that's kind of the way we live much of our life, but this is the way many or most, you know, events come to us, and we don't know what is happening in the heart of others or in the action of others. They need interpreting, and that's what we have in the cross, so that scripture becomes, you know, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures become, in Richard Hayes' picture, a kind of vast trope that signifies and illuminates the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the Bible about? Not to read the Bible through Jesus, which that just sounds so basic. But you understand that is an interpretive method that is characteristic, I think, of certainly evangelicalism, but maybe just characteristic of so much uh, American Christianity. So, you know, if you say to people, oh, I'm Christocentric, That's what this means. This is the interpretive key for Scripture, but kind of the interpretive key for reality. This is a way of coming to reality. So that's my answer to you, Matt, a long answer. I think this is kind of pre-modern and maybe post-modern in the undoing of the modern. You know, when you go camping, you smell a campfire a few a
3: few sites down. I'm getting little hints and little connections, just enough. I
1: want to keep following the breadcrumbs. Okay, let, so me, let me let me see if I get a marshmallow on the fire here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, a real practical way this may come alive for you. You know, Matt pointed out. Well, there are places that talk about you know, things that Jews would have a very difficult time believing. One of those places would be in Isaiah 52, the Song of the Servant. The picture is that they they understood this is a messianic passage, and we have examples of their reading of Isaiah. The examples are actually they're from the 5th century, but the presumption is this actually goes back to a much earlier reading. And that is that in the Isaiah passage, you know, talking about the suffering servant, the way the Jews would interpret it, that everything that was glorious and kingly, oh, that's of the Messiah. That's allowed to stand. But as soon as the servant's humiliation and suffering is mentioned, the text is altered in their understanding. So the reference to the servant as despised and rejected Uh, They say, no, that applies to heathen kings and kingdoms. That's not about the servant. Or the reference to the servant, you know, as led like a lamb to the slaughter. They say, that's not about the servant. That's about the mighty who will be delivered to slaughter. The reference to the servant pouring himself out in death is altered to read. Well, that means that he was subjected to danger. In other words, I think what I'm describing there is this Jewish sensibility. The scripture is literally veiled to them. What to us is now obvious, this messianic passage, the the suffering and dying Messiah, they just read it out of their Bibles. William Bosset says it was doubtful whether it would have been possible, in view of Jewish messianic belief, to interpret. Isaiah 53, in terms of a suffering Messiah. They could not conceive of a suffering Messiah. And so neither could the contemporaries of Isaiah, that God's beloved Messiah would die. You know, if you had to pick the big villain in the Old Testament, one of the the major villains is Haman. Do you remember Haman, who was going to slaughter the Jews? And at the Feast of Purim, the Jews celebrate. You know, they read the book of Esther, when they celebrate deliverance from Haman. And every time you hear they say Haman, they say, let his name be blotted out. Uh, the name of the wicked will rot. The way that the Septuagint is describing the death of Haman is crucifixion. Absolutely the worst person in a Jewish world was Haman, and the worst thing that could happen happened to Haman And so to talk about a crucified Messiah is just beyond the pale.
3: Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Where does that come from?
1: That's Deuteronomy. And so there that literally, you know, this is Paul quotes it. There is almost this sense, it may, some people even connect it to human sacrifice. There is almost a religious sensibility about it. You're accursed. That's the worst thing that could, could be. And that's what's happening here, that this death, this unassembled, indigestible event, that's precisely what Christ is confronting, confronting because that's what needs to be confronted to bring heaven to earth. That's what needs to be undone. I, I think in part of this, that the strong sense of annihilation, and again, we could quote passages that do talk about resurrection, in the Old Testament, but they're few and far between, and it doesn't seem like they really had a strong sense of survival. That's why Abraham is all about, I got to have a son, so my name will continue. So when they're, they're, the best you get is to be remembered, and if you have a child, you would be remembered, and maybe God will remember you you know, but not if you go to Sheol. And so I think this explains the necessity of resurrection, but it also explains the rejection of a crucified Messiah by by the Jews and the polarization that it caused, that God became man and offered up his only begotten son for the sins of the world is a scandal. But I think we have to get the strong sense of the scandal. That is an impossibility. It violates a Jewish and a Greek sense of deity of the world, of sovereignty, the sheer transcendence of God, and it destroys the it destroys a Jewish worldview. That's what I think Christianity does. What I'm saying is there's no continuity between Greek thought, Jewish thought, and Christian thought. That's what conversion is, right? Conversion is a change in worldviews. When we say conversion, we're primarily thinking in terms of a moral sensibility. Certainly, it, uh, that must be part of it. But I think the thing we're missing is it is a transformation of the mind in the language of Paul. Our world is changed up. I, didn't, I, I say this in a kind of crude way, so. but the cross permanently fixes Christ in the frame of the world, that the cross is an a, eternal fact. It's an interpretive key. It's the unveiling of what's going on. And so here is the unveiling of Scripture. We don't know Scripture. We don't have Scripture apart from the cross of Christ. Mm. And I think that's what's happening in John. Here is this unveiling. Here is the echoes. You know, throughout we, we see these echoes, uh, and now they're, they're open to us. Here is what Jesus must have said to the two on the road to Emmaus. So this is Irenaeus. He says, if we are not reading through the cross, we're only reading myths, even if historically true. In other words, who, who cares? Uh, Irenaeus' point, he believes it's true but uh, historically, but more significantly, it's the gospel. It becomes the gospel through the cross.
4: Paul, oh, I have the, the quote here from St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, brings this home. Uh, he's, he's starting at verse 12. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, So the children of Israel could not steadily look at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty in the last verse, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as
1: by the Spirit of the Lord. That's it. Actually, the whole talk tonight could have been an exposition of that scripture.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth,